I want to begin the message this morning by asking you a question. How many of you know what I'm talking about when, just by a show of hands, how many of you know what I'm talking about when I use the term the white Ford Bronco? That's a pretty good sampling there. If you're not familiar with the white Ford Bronco, how about Marsha Clark? How about Judge Ito? How about Mark Furman or Cato Kalin? Some of these probably are bringing back some memories for a lot of us. Others of you maybe are too young to remember, or maybe you've just seen the movie. But I'm talking, of course, about the O.J. Simpson murder trial. The trial of the century, of last century, when this iconic American hero went on trial for the murder of his estranged wife and her companion. It was an incredible incredible time that began in the summer of 1994 and stretched deep into the next year before the verdict was read. Now, for those of you who don't remember the events themselves, let me just throw you kind of a pop culture lifeline that might help. I'm going to give you another name, Kardashian. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Robert Kardashian was one of OJ's dream team of attorneys long before there was Courtney and Kim and Chloe and Rob and all the stuff that we know from the reality TV. Robert Kardashian was one of OJ's best friends and attorneys in this trial. And the trial was, was something that riveted the entire nation. As a matter of fact, Julie and I watched the slow speed white Ford Bronco chase in live color on CNN the night that it happened. And deep into the summer that year, Julie was actually in the final throes of pregnancy with Emily, and so she was home a lot in the summertime. She was a teacher at the time, and she was home and just watched nonstop coverage of the OJ trial. There was one day in particular where she left me at home with Emily so she could go to the grocery store as a, as a newly delivered mom. You know, you just kind of get a little stir crazy, and going to the grocery store was a big party. So. She went out to the grocery store, and I was home with Emily. She was napping. I was watching the OJ trial on TV, and I heard Julie coming up the stairs to our apartment, and I just, this just hit me right in the moment. And as I heard her put her key in the door and open it, I jumped up from the sofa and went, OJ just admitted it. He just broke in the middle of the courtroom and said he can't take it anymore. He confessed to the murder. Julie dropped the groceries that were in her hands. She goes, you are lying to me. I've been watching this nonstop. I'm gone for 30 minutes, and he confesses while I'm gone? <laughs> she still hasn't forgiven me for that little prank. Because, of course, O.J. never confessed, and as a matter of fact, he was found not guilty by that jury in a highly highly controversial moment. But, but most people, whether they agreed or disagreed with the verdict, could point to one specific moment in the trial that hinged O.J.'s fate. It, it was that moment when one of the prosecuting attorneys tried to get O.J. to try on the glove, the glove that had been found at the murder scene and had traces of his blood, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman's blood. And when O.J. tried to get it on over the rubber glove, we're still not sure why that was going on in the courtroom, but he tried to get it on and, and it couldn't fit and O.J. held the glove up to the, to the jury and went, couldn't get it on, couldn't get it on. And his lead attorney, the great Johnny Cochran, in his closing arguments, said to that jury, very famously, 
if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. And that's exactly what they did. Now, don't worry for, for right now. Let's not worry about OJ's innocence or guilt. But I think that is the most glaring example in American jurisprudence history of one of the hallmarks of our justice system. And that is this. If you're going to bring charges against someone, if you are a prosecutor and they bring them to trial, as the prosecutor, you bear the burden of proof to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone is guilty of the charges you've brought in a courtroom. As a prosecutor, it's up to you to prove it. You, you have to prove it. It's funny to me because Christ followers, those of us who say we are disciples of Jesus, that we've placed our trust in Christ, we bear a similar burden of proof in our lives. The fact of the matter is the second we step into a relationship with Christ, we trust him for the forgiveness of our sins, for the remission of our guilt, and the hope of our eternity. When that happens, then we assume a responsibility to prove it. So I want you to right now, with passion and enthusiasm, tell the person you're sitting next to, prove it. Okay, I understand that it's been spring break. But I, I need you, I need you to kind of, let, let's, everybody, everybody take a deep breath real quick. Tell you, if you got your coffee, take a little sip there, get you some caffeine. And now tell your neighbor, prove it. For the last few weeks as a church, we've been immersed in this series called Why Bother? And before I take another step, I want to ask you if you'll join me in thanking Pastor Terry Cadwell for bringing the word last week that he did. It was incredible. Terry and his wife, Patsy, are such an incredible gift to our team and our church as a whole, and we're so grateful for them. And I'm grateful for his ability to parse and preach the word of God into the life of our church. But as we've looked at this question, why bother? It's a question that's anchored in Jesus' final statement to his closest followers. If you've got your Bibles, look in Matthew chapter 28. One more time, we're going to go back there again today. In Matthew 28, Jesus utters what is referred to as the Great Commission. And it's in this Great Commission that Jesus lays out for those followers and all of us who would follow those followers what it is that we are to be all about. He said this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, <clears throat> the obvious focus in this great commission is the going and making of disciples, to, to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But as we wrap up this series today, I want us to focus on the focus. Specifically, we understand that as followers of Jesus, we're to go and make disciples, but what are disciples supposed to do? What, what is it that as a follower of Christ, our responsibility is, and it's found there in the second verse of that Great Commission. Go and make disciples, we understand that. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we understand that. But then Jesus focuses the focus, and he says, 
teach these new disciples to obey everything I've commanded you. You see, as a follower of Jesus, it's not enough to simply know what Jesus said. It's not enough to simply learn what Jesus said and to, to read the Bible. I've shared this with you before, but one of the great challenges of my spiritual journey happened to me when I was in seminary. Now, that may sound a little counterintuitive to you, but I remember when I was in seminary, reaching a point where I was studying the Greek and the Hebrew. I'd had Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, preaching classes, ministry leadership ethics classes, all of these classes, and yet I felt so distant, so removed from God. And it began to kind of frustrate me. I was like, man, this is supposed, we're in seminary. This is supposed to be like the time when you're the closest to God in the whole world. But what I found happened without my even realizing it was that the Bible had become another textbook. The Bible had become another book of information rather than what God intends it to be, and that is a book of transformation. It wasn't just enough to know what the Bible said. It had to take root down deep inside my life. And it was when I realized that that was going on that I came back to and I found a passage of Scripture that has become kind of the anchor verse for me personally, just in my spiritual journey. And as a result, through a lot of my teaching and preaching and leading, and it's in John chapter 17. In John 17, Jesus said, this is salvation, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's it. That they might know you. Now that verb in the original Greek, to know Jesus, is, is a deep and abiding, intimate knowledge. It's the same verb that's used of husbands and wives. That, that husbands know their wives, that wives know their husbands, that there's an intimacy to that. And when that intimacy is present, then everything else has meaning, it has purpose, it has life attached to it. But without the relationship, it's just rules and regulations. How many of you know that without relationship, rules and regulations break down? Let me just see a show of hands. Anybody who's a parent knows that. I mean, if you do nothing but tell your kids, because I said so, do this, don't do that, that, that might work when they're four, maybe, but woe be unto you when they go to 14. Somebody help me preach. I mean, at that point, it's all about relationship. And this is true of the Christian faith as well. So, Yes, Jesus says, obey everything I've commanded you, but obey out of a relationship. See, I think this is why it's so hard for parents a lot of times, because it, be honest with you, how many of us are parents? Let me see a show of hands, if you're a mom or a dad. How many of us as moms or dads have ever or are now afraid? Let me just see a show of hands. If you're, if you're, like, if you're not afraid, you're not paying attention. I mean, you, you look at what the world that our kids are growing up in, you look at the choices that they have available to them now as opposed to when we were coming up, but you and I both know you can't parent out of fear. You've got to parent toward a vision. You, you point your children toward a vision of what God has for them in their lives, not what we're afraid could happen. 
So we stand up and we charge forward because not only is this the year of living fearlessly for us as a church family, but fear is a miserable way to live. And God says it's about relationship. It's about relationship. Now, within every relationship, there are absolutely rules. Every relationship has rules. I mean, Julie and I have been married almost 25 years. We got rules. She prefers that I not kiss other women. That's just one of our little rules in our household. I prefer that Julie not go to Vegas and dance with other men. That's just, that's just call me crazy. But that's, that's our bag. We've got some rules in the relationship. We've got other rules in the relationship. When Julie talks to me, I listen. When she says something, I respond. Well, why do you do that? Because I want her to kiss me goodnight. Somebody. That's why. Because we love each other. You see, this love relationship with God requires obedience. And obedience is one of those things that is tough, tough work. But, but here's the thing that we know to be true. Our obedience acknowledges Jesus' authority. Our obedience acknowledges Jesus' authority. Now, this is not just a small thing. This is a massive thing. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, it's important that you understand the authority of Jesus. Right before he uttered the Great Commission, he said something really interesting to his closest disciples. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, that's a pretty bold claim. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I've shared with you before that I played basketball in high school. Most of you have no firsthand knowledge of that. Most of you hopefully believe that it's true. You, you want to believe that your pastor doesn't lie to you. But I, I could tell you that I, not only did I play basketball in high school, but I was the best guy on the team. I know it's hard to believe looking at me now, but it's true. That wasn't that funny. But I could also tell you that I was all district point guard, quick as a cat. Sweet Jay. And if my coach hadn't messed me over in recruiting, I would have had a scholarship to play in college. I'm just kidding. That's what everybody who says who didn't get to play in college but wanted to. My coach messed me over. He didn't even tell me about the letters I was getting. Some of you men know what I'm talking about. You, you work with guys like that. You know, the guys who are 40 still wear their letter jacket? That's a bad world. That's a bad look. But when Jesus says, I have been given all authority, that is reality. That's the fact. And the sooner we embrace that reality, the sooner we can enjoy that reality. You see, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the 
King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the author and perfecter. He is creator of this universe. All authority is his. And so it's important for us to understand that. And I've noticed in the people that I know and get to talk to who are not yet Christ followers, there, there are a lot of issues that get raised. Creation versus evolution. What about the dinosaurs? A lot of questions get raised. Well, the Bible was written by men. How, how do you believe? Well, I don't know about the miracles. I, I can't get there. Thomas Jefferson cut all the miracles out of the Bible. What about, and I, and I understand, all of those questions are valid and worth engaging in. And as believers, it's incumbent upon us to be able to have those kind of conversations. But I've also noticed another phenomenon at work. And that is that most of the time, most of the time, skeptics, cynics of the Christian faith, are not as concerned with dinosaurs and miracles as they are with authority. You see, the, the dinosaurs and the miracles, we can throw that up as a smokescreen to keep God at arm's length. But when it's all said and done, most of the time, the problem that we have with God is his authority because we want the authority. But Jesus says all authority is his. And we, we butt up against that. We butt up against that if we are Christ followers. There's something inside of all of us that has this drive for self-determination. Julie and I are at an interesting kind of transitional season in life. Our kids are out of the house but in college. So they're, they're, they're not with us day in and day out, but we're, we're still very connected relationally and communicationally and certainly financially. But I had a fascinating conversation with Emily a few weeks ago. She called me from South Carolina where she's in college, and we were talking, and, and as she's approaching the end of her college career, she graduates a year from now off the payroll. And she was reflecting on what it was like growing up in our household. And she said, you know, it's funny, but I didn't always like it when you and mom told me what to do or what not to do, listen, as only Emily could say, listen, I didn't always like it, but I knew that you were doing what you were doing for my benefit. And so as a dad, you kind of, well, let's, let's kind of, let's, let's probe that a little bit further. I said, Emily, how did you know that we were doing it for your benefit? She said, I never one time thought that y'all did anything as parents because you were the pastor or because of the way it made y'all look, but you always explained why you were telling me what to do or what not to do differently when I would get corrected or when I was, you know, rude that one time. And, and I could cite you dozens of examples where I blew it as a father. Times when I, when I blew up, when I responded out of anger or selfishness or being tired and, and I messed up. But what Emily cited there as a parental win for Mac and Julie is actually something that we know to be indicative and representative all the time of our perfect 
heavenly Father. And that is the fact that our obedience always results in his glory and our good. We, we forget that when we're obedient to the will and the word of God, that makes our life work better. Because that's how we were created. That's how he's wired up this world as an expression of his grace and his love and his creativity and his power. That when we align with him, everything works better. Everything. And Jesus actually bears an incredible testimony to this. There's this fascinating moment in Jesus' life when he's approached by a Roman centurion. And this Roman centurion comes up to Jesus one day and says, teacher, rabbi, I have a young servant at home who is deathly ill and sick. Would you please pray for my servant? And Jesus says, I'll come to your house today. And the Roman centurion said something really interesting. He said, no, 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 I, I don't, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house he said, but I know that if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. Look at what the centurion said. This is in Matthew chapter 8. He said, I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. I mean, You've got to understand, a Roman centurion was the absolute backbone of the Roman Empire. The Roman centurions, those soldiers were how Rome kept people in line. And if they stepped out of line, or if they disobeyed an order, then the entire structure broke down. This centurion, speaking to Jesus, says, I get it. I understand the principle at work here. And we would look at that historically and be, well, I, I get that. I've, you know, I've seen Gladiator. I know how Rome worked. And, you know, that's, that's cool. But I think Jesus' response is so fascinating. Look at what he said. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Now, there, there's a couple of things going on there. Can I, just think for a moment. What would it be like to get home one day and to tell your spouse, to tell your family, maybe to tell your parents, you're not going to believe what I did today. I amazed Jesus. I amazed the Son of God. But what amazed Jesus? It was his understanding of authority and its connection to faith. You see, the centurion believed that Jesus could speak the word and his servant would be healed. But he believed it because he understood authority. He understood authority. Man, if you and I could understand authority like this Roman centurion understood authority, how much better would our lives work? How much richer? How much fuller? 
Adrian Rogers was the pastor of a great, great church in Memphis for decades. And Adrian Rogers had one of those voices that as pastors, to be totally candid with you, we covet. When, when I hear, like when I hear a, like a Dodge Ram commercial, I hear Sam Elliott doing a Dodge commercial, I covet that voice. I don't think, man, if, if, if I had that voice, people would get saved by the thousands every weekend. That's the kind of voice that Adrian Rogers had. And Adrian Rogers had a deep, deep, resonant voice. And not only was it deep and resonant, but it had just a little hint of the South in it. He pastored in Memphis. And so, I mean, it's like, I, I'm, I don't know this. I don't have a Bible verse to back this up, but I'm pretty sure Adrian Rogers' voice is what God's going to sound like when we get to heaven. That's just, that's just a guess that I have. But not only did he have a great voice, he was a phenomenal expositor of God's word, a phenomenal teacher and a phenomenal leader. And he said something that I've never forgotten, I heard decades ago. He said, in order for us to get over what God has put under us, we must get under what God has put over us. I'm going to say that again, because it's that significant. You need to write this stuff down, not because it's coming from me, but because it's truth. In order for us to be over what God has put under us, we must get under what God has put over us. That means we have to understand authority. We have to understand that in the household, mom and dad run the show. I thought there'd be at least one amen out there for that. Which means, mom and dad, we got to run the show. But for students and children to understand that mom and dad have been placed in that position of authority by the hand of God, whether you were born or adopted, you're there by the hand of God. And so the sooner you submit to their authority, the sooner you're going to be where God wants you to be, the better your life will operate. How many of you ever had a crazy teacher in school? Hands are going up all over the room. Yes, the buses will wait. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That, that's, that's part of it. Now, how many of you have worked for somebody crazy before? Our staff should keep their hands down right now. <laughs> Submitting to authority doesn't mean agreeing that the authority is right. Submitting to authority is an act of worship. That's what Jesus was acknowledging in the Roman centurion. In our relationship with God, we have to understand that Jesus' authority is absolute and absolutely good. Jesus' authority is absolute. There is no doubt about who's in charge. Now, I don't always like that. There are certainly things that I wish were different. I wish that there were certain things that he allowed that he doesn't allow, things that I feel like doing that he says don't feel like doing. But his authority is absolute, and it is absolutely good. It is absolute and absolutely good. Jesus desires our obedience. 
Jesus desires our obedience for his glory and our good. You see, Jesus said, if, if you're my friend, you obey my commands. If you love me, do what I said to do. Disciple, follower of Jesus. Julie and I were having this conversation actually this past week. And we were talking about the number of times in our lives that, that we've wondered, what should we do? What's God's will? Should we move to Austin? Should we have another child? Should we be content where we are? And, and those, those kind of questions pop up every now and then. They do. But it's interesting how many times We've known exactly what to do. Obedience is not complicated. Obedience is not confusing. Obedience is doing the next right thing. Just doing the next right thing. Doesn't mean that we always like what the next right thing is. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to just sign off on it and hold hands and sing kumbaya. But it's the next right thing. It's, it's not complicated. Now, neither is it easy. It, it is hard work doing the right thing. It's hard to be obedient to the will and the word of God. But Jesus desires our obedience for his glory because when we're obedient, we glorify and honor him. And there's something that happens in our obedience that I think is too important for us to miss. Our obedience is an affirmation of our faith. Our obedience is an affirmation of our faith. It's a statement that our walk lines up with our talk. When we say we're following Christ, when we say this is the most important thing, then our obedience is an affirmation of that. But second, our obedience is an invitation to faith. It's an invitation to the people around us. Think about the life of Jesus, and this makes sense. Jesus was a people magnet. People flocked to Jesus. But who was it that flocked to him? Con men, prostitutes, outcasts, the sick, the lame, the rich, the poor— Whoever was an outcast or considered to be beyond the reach of religion, those are the people who were drawn to Jesus. Therefore, the more our lives line up with Jesus' life, the more people are going to be drawn to us. If our words and our actions, our tone, our motives, our thoughts are those of Christ's, then people are going to be drawn to that. People are going to flock to it. It's an invitation to faith. So Jesus desires our obedience for his glory and our good. But there, there's another thing. Jesus deserves our obedience. Jesus deserves our obedience. If you think about who he is, if you think about what he did, next weekend we celebrate Easter. The central fact of our faith, the fact that Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross, 
and was buried in a borrowed grave and on the third day rose from the dead. And the fact that that tomb is now empty you start to understand that he deserves our obedience. I I told you, you know, that Julie and I, in our marriage, it works better when I pay attention and when I'm kind and and I'm attentive and I'm sweet and I'm a servant and and all those things that just come so naturally to me. Those those things, that that helps everything work better. But you know, the fact of the matter is the sweeter, kinder, and more often Julie kisses me, the more that those things happen, the more I want to do those things. Jesus died on the cross for you. He died on a cross for me. And so he deserves my obedience. John chapter 14, I'm sorry, 15. John 15 says, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. We're friends of Jesus in our obedience. We're friends of Jesus in our obedience. He desires it, but man, he deserves it. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me for just a moment. And in this moment, I want to invite you to step into a prayer. It's a prayer of commitment. For those of us who are followers of Christ, for those of us who are Christians, it's a commitment to really and truly honor God in our obedience, to live lives that represent Him, that reflect His character and honor His calling on us. But if you're here this morning and you've never stepped into that relationship, you've never committed your life to Christ, why not right now? Jesus himself said, this is salvation, that you know him, that you enter into that intimate relationship, no holds barred. If that's you this morning, then I want to just invite you to pray right where you're sitting. Just silently talk to God and say, Jesus, I need you. And so right now I give you my life. On this Palm Sunday, I commit, I submit. To your absolute and absolutely good authority. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name.
with our heads bowed for just another moment. If that was your prayer, that's the most important prayer you'll ever pray in your life. It's not the last one, but it's the most important one. Because that's where it all begins. And so as a church, we want to help in this new relationship that you've entered into today. We want to come alongside you and be a family of faith to you. And so we would just ask before you leave today, if you wouldn't mind, just make a personal connection. In the program that you got when you came in today, there's a connect card, and we would ask that you just fill that out and indicate on that card, I'm committing my life to Christ this week. Tear it off at the perforation, and before you leave, hand it to one of our ushers. Or on your way out the main exit here, there's a there's a blue canopy, and you can just hand it to somebody and just say, hey, today was my day. That's all you have to do. It's the beginning of being a part of the family of faith. Also, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if, if that was your prayer, would you just quietly but unmistakably raise your hand? Just raise your hand for just a moment, and as you do, know that you're just stamping this moment in your life and in the life of this church and saying, I'm in. If you don't have it all figured out, welcome to the club. It's what we do together. And know that we honor that and we celebrate that in your life. And as a church, as you put your hands down, we put our hands together and we tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.